Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONECURCITYCAST20. You might have heard that the rise of synthetic opioids like fentanyl have led to a record number of overdose deaths in Portland. But it's not just the risk associated with using the drug that's grown. As it turns out, it's actually much harder to get off the drug, too. And it's one of the many factors exacerbating our city's houseless crisis. So today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with Emily Green of The Lund Report. She recently looked into the challenges fentanyl and other drugs have created for detox providers and other treatment centers in the Portland area. And she's helping us unpack some of the issues at play that we're actively seeing in our streets today. It's Thursday, June 22nd. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. What is it about fentanyl that makes it so hard for people to get off the drug? In my reporting on addiction in Oregon, it's become clear that fentanyl is just so absolutely devastating for so many reasons. And a big part of that is the pull that it has on people. Um, For starters, fentanyl is so potent and highly addictive that it really accelerates the addiction trajectory. And by that, I mean um, from the the time between when a person starts using to the time when their life is completely falling apart becomes much shorter. and I've, I've had addiction providers tell me that they've seen this happen. And um, in many cases where people might need a few years of using to really need um, intensive treatment, this happens in young people even as quickly as in three to six months when it comes to fentanyl use. Wow. And you, you wrote specifically about uh, Joelle White. Could you tell us a little bit about that story and what you heard from her family? So Joelle White was actually the mother. Uh, we didn't want to use uh, her daughter's name in the in the story. Um, she's a mother who lives in Scapoose, and her 25-year-old daughter started using fentanyl about two to three years ago. And her downward spiral was very quick. Um, she's currently still using fentanyl and experiencing homelessness on the streets of Portland. She's been through detox several times. Um, Every time she's been through detox, uh, she's wanted residential treatment when she got out that was never available. Um, Her mother has seen her go through fentanyl withdrawals a few times. Um, She said it's very difficult to watch. uh, Just um, there's uncontrollable screaming. She tries to comfort her daughter and she can't even touch her because every part of her body hurts. Um, And then each time she's completed detox, and she's always completed it, she's always made it to the end and wanted that next step, um, but it's just not there. She was given a bed in sober housing at one point, but she wasn't successful, and her mother really thinks that's because she needed residential treatment next to gain a foundation. What's the difference between detox and residential treatment? So 
detox or a withdrawal management facility is for people who are experiencing acute withdrawal from drugs or alcohol. So there's doctors and nurses that are there to administer medication to help them with their withdrawal symptoms. Um, it's usually three to five days or maybe even less than that. Um, but once they're no longer acutely um, sick with withdrawal, then they need to graduate to another step. Um, so residential treatment is going to be um, like a 30-day program where they might move into um, an inpatient treatment facility for a certain amount of time. They start, you know, the recovery process and the counseling mm. and then those sorts of things. Like what, where the actual work starts essentially. Absolutely, because that work can't start when a person is, you know, in the throes of agonizing withdrawal. And let's talk about that detox, because your article also stated that um, because people have become so addicted, because this drug um, looks so different in the detox process, that our old models are not really helping people recover after detox. Basically, this recovery program, this drug-free housing isn't working as well as it used to. Could you explain a little why? Yeah, um, the other thing, another challenge with fentanyl is that the withdrawal lasts a lot longer. I spoke to um, Solara Salazar. She runs West Coast Housing. It's uh, six sober houses. And she said that she's had zero um, people who use fentanyl that's, that have come to her houses straight from detox be successful. Often when they show up, um, they're sweating, they're still really sick, they're still having really intense cravings. They're no longer at that acute stage where they can be kept in a detox, but they're still um, in, a, in a place where there's gonna be a strong desire to use again mm -hmm. to make the pain go away. And in addition to that, just because of the pull of fentanyl and how highly addictive it is and, and the kind of mental state and just physical state that people get into, and there's a lot of poly substance use going on too. So it's often, you know, not just fentanyl, um, meth is a big part of this as well. But they, they really aren't ready to be independent in a house. Um, they need a little more help to get on their feet and, and prepare for a successful recovery journey. Yeah. It's, you know, you just said meth. And I remember, you know, last year it coming out that the meth that was hitting uh, the streets was very different from the meth of before and that it was pushing people to psychosis quicker than ever. So what I'm hearing is this double whammy of, you know, this crazy potent meth that's making people psychotic and then this fentanyl that is making them crave drugs. Do you think this is at all exacerbating the houseless crisis that Portland is having right now? I mean, it's a lot of people were just like, oh, the, you know, the pandemic. Um, I grew up with houseless people. I grew up in LA. It, there's a difference between the houseless people I grew up with and what I'm seeing in downtown. It looks like zombies are walking around I think what we're seeing is that, and this is what providers tell me, um, people are, are just so much more acutely ill. Um, I want to be clear, you know, meth doesn't necessarily cause psychosis in everyone who uses it, but if there's any kind of genetic predisposition um, for mental illness, it's going to really exacerbate that. You've got a lot of sleep deprivation um, happening. Uh, folks experiencing homelessness, oftentimes, especially women, um, they, they don't feel comfortable sleeping at night. So they'll, you know, use substances to stay awake so they can um, 
protect themselves. And I, I've felt a change too. I know what you're talking about. I, I worked in Old Town at Street Roots for seven years um, before coming to the Lund Report. And the last few times I've been down there, you know, it just kind of feels different. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's because I've been removed, you know, for so long, but I, I just see so many more people who are so much more ill um, yeah. and just, you know, really seem to be um, struggling. And providers say that this is what they're saying too. People come back, the same people are coming back over and over again. Each time they see them, they're, they're a lot sicker. Um, their, their mental illness is more severe. And a big part of the issue is that they're not getting help when they need it. They're getting they're getting one part of the system. They're not getting the next step or the next step. There's so many gaps where people can fall out that it's hard to really recover. Yeah, that's interesting. These drugs are making it, are clouding a nuanced issue. Um, and I feel like it's become so multi-pronged that I can imagine why service providers uh, or the city is having a hard time trying to put it, you know, trying to hold it because it's like, you can't just put a, a mentally ill person in housing. You know, that's not going to work, right? You know, like th- they're going to want to leave or they're going to go back to drugs or whatever. And then you can't just detox someone and then not give them, as you stated, the residential treatment, the the therapy. Because usually it's like, well, if you have a, a drug dependency, you go here. And if you're houseless, you go here. It feels like the majority of the houseless population is having a drug dependency issues. I'm speaking out of turn here. I don't know. But that's what it feels like when I go out there. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think, you know, when we're speaking about homelessness, there's a lot of different types of homelessness. Um, I think what we're talking about is the visible um, chronic street homelessness. I think there's a lot of people experiencing homelessness who are in their cars or campers. They might be camped somewhere a little less visibly. They might be couch surfing. Um, I always hate to, you know, paint any group with a broad brush. I think, though, that for folks who are dealing with um, addiction issues, mental health issues, or in a lot of cases, both, you know, as people aren't getting the help they need, and as the housing crisis, the pandemic, all these other factors are compounding, you know, homelessness to begin with, you know, the group of people that are really sick is just growing. Well, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, Are houseless people battling addiction on the streets, even seeking out help? You said that one of the uh, larger misconceptions about fentanyl use is that people aren't looking for help, that, you know, people are choosing to be out in the street with mental illness and and they don't care. That's what a lot of people, you know, who who have very tertiary... uh, involvement with the houseless population might assume. Um, You know, your reporting basically contradicts that. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, looking into fentanyl, I wanted to see, like, how is this impacting detox facilities? And I was pretty surprised to find out that um, at Hooper, which is the largest detox in the state, actually, they have, they're operating about 55 beds um, here in Portland. They served last year um, about 2,700 people they admitted for inpatient detox. They turned away another 2,000. 2,108 people 
uh, were turned away simply because they didn't have the capacity to meet demand. Um, the majority of Hooper's clientele is experiencing homelessness, according to their own internal data. So you have folks who are living on the streets, um, making their way to Hooper's front door, asking for help and being told, come back tomorrow. And there's only a 35% chance that they will because the way addiction works is you have to seize on that moment when somebody's really ready. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't people who are so um, acutely ill that getting to the point of seeking treatment, you know, it might be very difficult for them to do. But, you know, as there's conversations on the Twitterverse in City Hall about finding ways to compel people in the treatment, we're not even helping the people um, who are showing up at the door begging for treatment right mm -hmm. now. And of course, the other piece of that is that 2,700 that do get in, what happens to them when they leave? Well, providers at both Hooper and Fora Health, which off, um, operates the other detox in Portland, told me that too often they're, they're discharging people with substandard plans. And sometimes they're discharging people right back to the street with a plan for outpatient treatment, which is not realistic. Especially if um, people end up taking drugs to deal with living on the street. Yeah, I can't imagine taking drugs while still being houseless. That's just, that's a very large ask. So what kinds of things could local officials do to make a dent, you think, in this crisis? Oh, that's the million dollar question, right? I mean, aside from having like <laughs> double or triple the amount of detox centers and then residential housing available. Um, do you think that would be like a first major step or? Well, my answer here is going to be kind of nuanced. Um, so Oregon just really lacks a complete system of addiction care. Um, it's no secret. This has been a problem for a long time. Um, I think, you know, it's a big part of the reason voters approved Measure 110 um, was to address that issue by building more treatment facilities. Um, but what's happening is Measure 110 is building up certain parts of the system, um, but the money to build up residential treatment and more housing, that needs to come from somewhere else. Um, under Governor Kate Brown and the former um, administration over at Oregon Health Authority, I found there really was no coordinated strategic plan wow. for building up that system. And honestly, I, I, I don't see that it, that has really changed. Um, a big part of Kotex's plan is spending the investment from the legislature in 2021. It was like close to a billion dollars in be behavioral health care. But I asked um, her office, I asked Oregon Health Authority, okay, how much, how many treat residential treatment beds for addiction is that money going to pay for? They didn't know. They didn't know how many new beds were going to be hold treated. On, hold on. How yeah. can you have a billion dollars and have no plan? I'm assuming it's just this part of the larger picture, or are you saying they have a billion dollars and you're saying that they don't have any kind of strategy? That's what I'm saying. Wow. I mean, a lot of the money of that billion dollars, a lot of it's going to the mental health system. Gotcha. Um, I think there's a lot of planning around diverting people away from the Oregon State Hospital. But mm -hmm. whenever you ask about addiction, they point to that investment in behavioral health. But the reality is that in Oregon, the addictions care system and mental health system are very separated. Um, mm -hmm. There's all kinds of reasons for that. And a lot of that money really isn't going to addiction care at all. Um, so... Mm -hmm. 
Kotick had a budget request to create new beds, but neither her office nor OHA knew how many beds that would create. So we still are in a place where we're building up parts of the care system, but these huge gaps remain, and it's it's really unclear how we're going to fill them. Hmm. It is nuanced because it seems like you can't really separate, in a sense, the mental health issues that we're having and the drug addiction issues that we're having since they're feeding into each other. So if you're not taking care of the recovery aspect, then yes, it doesn't matter how hard you build up this other system here of just mental health, all the state hospitals are going to be overwhelmed and we're still going to have a houseless issue. Our crisis is still going to continue. And so there has to be more of a, what I'm hearing is like a holistic strategy looking at the problem at hand. And they're probably looking at from, I used to work at the government and I remember what numbers we would use and it was always five years old. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like, finally, we have the funding for the thing we wanted five years ago. And by then it's like the whole world's changed. And so if everyone, just so you guys know, that's the big, like, if anyone's like, why is the government always five or 10 years behind? It's because then you would have to redo all your research at that moment. And usually you don't have funding for that. You just got funding to take care of that problem five years Well, and I, that really speaks to what's happening here, too, in so many ways, because even the system that's being built up isn't necessarily taking into account um, all the new challenges from the new landscape of drugs. I mean, fentanyl, more potent meth, the combination of the two, and it, it's posing a lot of new challenges that probably are going to require a little more creative thinking to mm-hmm. really address. Um, I've heard from uh, you know people with lived experience who advocate for better treatment systems that you know, even if we stand up a whole new system of care, if it's based on all the old models, it might not help a lot of people now. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that 30 days of residential treatment can help somebody who's been chronically losing using meth for years is is not realistic. They need, in some cases, months, months and months of treatment just to get um, their mental faculties back to be able to really start recovering. Yeah. So if the state system is a long way off, um, how are care providers coping? How is everyone on the ground floor who's actually trying to service uh, this population of our community? Like, how are they keeping everything together? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of workforce shortages in behavioral health right now. Um, And that probably has something to do with it. Jennifer Hartley, she's the medical director over at Fora Health, told me it's 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 really hard to and it's it's just heartbreaking to have to turn away people who are, you know, begging for help or, you know, discharging them back to homelessness when they're saying please she said people actually, if they find out that at the end of detox they're not getting a bed in a residential treatment center, they'll just get up and leave. Because, you know, what's the point? And then you also have, you know, the other challenge is Medicaid reimbursements don't cover the cost of care for addiction care. Really? Wages are low. Um, So even if you've got all this money to throw at the issue, you have workforce uh, challenges that have to be overcome, too. So it's it's (laughs) there are so many problems Mm -hmm. um, that have to be addressed um, to really fix the system here in Oregon. Wow. Could you give us one silver lining, Emily, please, before I <laughs> <laughs> before I turn my computer off forever? When it works, 
it works. And sometimes it is working. There are services out there. I interviewed one gentleman who, his story was really interesting because he was, um, he was a sociology professor at one point. Um, he was writing policy papers for think tanks over on the East Coast. Um, series of unfortunate events in life and he started using crystal meth. In the summer of 2021, he was shirtless, wandering around in extreme psychosis on the streets of Portland. He had a broken leg. His name is Jonathan M. Rose. And he, he was thinking about jumping off uh, the Burnside Bridge. And, you know, in a state of psychosis, he said, God told him your daughter's not going to remember you this way. He made it to Hooper. He was turned away because they were full. It was a Friday. He went out and used again, but he made it back. He made it back on Monday. He got in. Um, when he got out, he got into a program. It was supportive housing, but they um, he got both mental health and addiction treatment through NARA together. Um, pretty intensive for seven months. And today he's doing great. He's actually working for Central City Concern. He's been promoted four times. He's working in their, you know, internal communications department. His office is just a couple blocks from where he was camping two years ago. But I, I think, you know, when you can see how drastically people can turn around they can, and can come out of it, you know, in some cases with the right treatment, you know, I think, I think, I guess that's the silver lining. <laughs> I just, you know, hopefully Oregon gets to a place where we can see more of that. Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you so much for all the work that you do, keeping us informed uh, of the fentanyl crisis here in the state. We appreciate your work. Thanks for giving me a platform to talk about it. And now for your microdose of news. The state legislature is getting ready to approve $1 billion in bonds to help fund the expansion and replacement of the I-5 bridge over the Columbia River. Now, this decision and money came out of seemingly nowhere this past week. Washington state has already approved its portion of the funds for the nearly $6 billion project. We'll be diving a bit deeper into all of this on Friday's News Roundup. And hundreds of Multnomah County mental health workers are authorized to write involuntary holds for people who they believe are imminent risks to either themselves or others. But according to documents obtained by Willamette Week, the city's dedicated law enforcement alternative, Portland Street Response, has been denied that same privilege. It's the latest example of how Portland Street Response is being set up to fail. The city has already decreased Portland Street Response's funding, among other institutional obstacles, to the program's success. A program that, I will add, has worked exceedingly well in nearly every other city it's been properly implemented in. Just ask Denver. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. Slim's.